This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Rishi Sunak uses his big break on GB News to remind us he can't connect the people. Burnout, cross lines and exploitation when yoga turns toxic. And on the 10th anniversary of Holly Gazard's death, her father recalls the horror of her murder and not letting anger destroy him. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Just a warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, this week saw Rishi shoot his shot with a live audience on GB News. Turns out, observes John Crace, the PM's hour-long Q&A on the People's Forum once again shows that he's just not very good at this sort of thing. Read by William Vanderpoy. I suppose it was almost inevitable. Nearly every Conservative MP has their own show on GB News. So it was only a matter of time before it was Rishi Sunak's turn. The Prime Minister is going to have a free diary after the next election. Perhaps he could do a weekly phone-in show from California though the £100,000 he might get for it probably won't be nearly enough to make ends meet. He paid five times more than that in tax last year. For Rishi's big break on GB News, we got an hour-long Q&A on the People's Forum. A lucky audience of undecided voters selected by the polling company Servation. Rishi here, he gurned in trailers, screened throughout the day. Ask me anything! though hopefully not about tax. Sunak didn't seem that keen to explain why he paid a lower tax rate than most of the rest of the country. On the GB News message board, the first questions started rolling in. Hedgehog wanted to know why the Muslims got a special vote in elections. It's possible Hedgehog hadn't quite understood what commentators meant when they talked of the Muslim vote. Raysellers reckoned there should be daily flights of illegal immigrants to the Falklands. Somehow, I don't think that question would get selected either. Presenter Stephen Dixon opened the show with a brief welcome and then handed over to Rish, who proceeded to make his opening remarks with his back to the camera. Not the greatest 60 seconds of television. It's been a tough few years, 
Sunak began. Covid? Ukraine? Curiously, he didn't also think to mention Brexit, or the Liz Trust budget, or 14 years of Conservative incompetence. Sunak is getting very forgetful these days. Rish then moved on to his five priorities. Sorry, your priorities. Yet again, he has merely been doing us all a favour. Mumble, mumble, mumble. So as we could all see, well, as we might have done, if we had been able to hear properly, he was actually delivering all five of his priorities. Everything was working perfectly. We had never had it so good. I can offer change, he concluded. So let's run through this again. You can offer change from yourself and your government. That's very big of you. On to the first question. David from Darlington. Tell us one thing of any substance you've actually done. Rish bounced into life. He had been to Darlington once, never again, but he loved the North. That's why he had levelled it up. Teesside was going brilliantly, apart from the reports that said there were financial concerns. He finished off by lying about Freeports. Next, Alex from London. Why was the NHS falling apart? Sunak wiped away an imaginary tear. He came from an NHS family, which was why he was determined never to use the NHS again. The doctors were all a bunch of greedy bastards who didn't know a good deal when they were offered it. The Tories had given the NHS record funding, though they do seem to have gone quiet on the imaginary 40 new hospitals they had promised to build. Keith from Edinburgh wanted to know what was happening with social care. So too did Rishi. He suggested it was a problem for local government. Nothing to do with him. On to Linda from Middleton. Why was he so adamant about Rwanda? Everyone knew it wasn't going to work. Now, Rish got all down with the people, keeping it real for GB News. He started dropping his consonants and introducing glottal stops into his sentences. Stop in the little boats. Rishi, the millionaire of the people. The authentic voice of youth, trying desperately to feign. It was sad, pathetic even. Then he had nothing to say, other than Rwanda would be a deterrent. He didn't seem to grasp the difference between sending Albanians to Albania and Afghan refugees to Rwanda. He even tried to blame Labour for stopping him. This is a man who takes no responsibility for his own legislation failing to comply with international law. There was a brief interruption from John, who was furious about the COVID vaccine compensation scheme. Look me in the eye, Rishi Sunak, he barked. If it was all the same, Rish would rather not. He's not a man who handles confrontation well. Jake from York wondered what Sunak could offer disillusioned Tory voters like him to stop him voting reform. It was at this point we realised that the undecided voters were not primarily those torn between Tory and Labour. This was a GB News audience, after all. Robin wanted to know what the Conservatives could offer people who were LGBT. Rish looked horrified. Why should he offer them anything? He was fed up with being inclusive. Hell, what was the country coming to these days? You couldn't even make a trans joke in front of the mother of a murdered trans teenager without the Labour thought police being on your case. House building was on the mind of 19-year-old Josh from Shrewsbury. There was nowhere to live. Rish flicked the switch marked empathy. He felt Josh's pain. 
He wanted Josh to be able to buy a house like he had. All it would take was for Josh to make his first million as a hedge fund manager for Goldman Sachs, betting against Sterling. That was the patriotic thing to do. Josh looked understandably deflated. He got the message. He was never going to have his own home. And that was just about it. An hour that had passed quite quickly, if totally pointlessly, because we hadn't learned any more about Rish than we already knew. That he's just not very good at this sort of thing. He can't connect with people. He lives in a parallel world to the rest of us. Whatever the questions, he gives the same boilerplate answers. He doesn't believe what he's saying, so why should we? He's merely going through the motions. Someone should have a word. For his sanity as well as ours. It's going to be a long eight months. Not all of us are going to get out of it alive. That was Rish uses his big break on GB News to remind us he can't connect with people by John Crace. Read by William Vanderpoy. Next. From writer Annie Rice's very first downward dog, she was hooked. But training as a yoga teacher led her to a miserable world of false promises, exploitation and near-total burnout. Could she find her way back to the mat? Read by Brownie Rule. In a steamy room in a high-end London gym, I roll onto my right side and open my eyes. A soothing Aussie drawl emerges from the darkness, telling me to sit up, bring my hands together, and remember the universe is fundamentally supporting my soul. Everyone here has taken a lunch break from our media, PR or marketing jobs to take this class. Our bearded guru, A, speaks as an Eddie Vedder song plays in the background, and I feel a deep sense of relief. For a minute, there is peace. In two more, we'll be ripping off lycra in the highly charged changing room before rushing back to our desks with a tiny portion of soup from the chain next door. But for this one minute, three times a week, I feel calm. I feel calm because A looks me in the eye and says everything is going to be okay. I'm not thinking about how my body looks, if the boy I fancy is in the office today, how anyone else's body looks, what my boss thinks of me. I am simply in the moment. I'm 23 and this is my introduction to yoga, the moment I found myself ready to sign up for everything it could offer me. I had no idea it was the start of a 10-year roller coaster of giddy highs, miserable exploitation and physical and emotional burnout. I was enchanted by the yoga world and mesmerised by yoga teachers in general. The incense, the candles and the vague platitudes about the meaning of life were intoxicating. I was at the end of my first relationship and a year into an exciting job at a running magazine. I had no idea what I was doing and felt perpetually out of my depth. I was facing my first ever house share after years living with my boyfriend and I was putting all my anxiety into running. My increasingly unhealthy relationship with food and exercise needed a channel, so why not make it spiritual? Yoga wasn't just a hobby, it could be a way of life. More than anything, I needed focus. And while most sensible people my age were experimenting with ecstasy and staying out all weekend, I was hell-bent on finding my highs elsewhere. Hungry for more yoga, I found a female teacher to idolise. She was a perfect combination of thin, bendy and conventionally gorgeous, 
while also appearing deep, aloof and mysterious. I would lie on my mat at the end of class as spiritual music echoed through the room, letting quiet tears roll down my face and pray for her to rub my temples with lavender. A serious injury acquired in a marathon sealed the deal. Working for a running magazine, when running, had left me with a broken femur. Felt wrong. I was burnt out. I was going to become a yoga teacher. The first step towards my new career was to ask A for recommendations. He led me to B. Because I'm impulsive and impatient, I went to only one of her classes and decided on the way home to apply to the 200-hour, 10-month training that was about to begin. I lied about my experience on the application because a year of gym yoga wasn't impressive enough. But luckily, that doesn't really matter when you're transferring £3,000. My yoga teacher training sent me to central London rather than the beaches of Goa, sadly. There were 15 of us on the course, all women. I was the youngest. The rest were either single and childless and freaking out, or married and deep into parenting and freaking out. The course was a glorious mix of red flags and life-changing moments. B was a miraculous creature who could quite literally fold herself in half. She wore jazzy leggings covered in unicorns and peacock feathers, which were having a moment back then, and she had natural glamour and authority. She was white and European, but had been deeply entrenched in yogic philosophy for a long time. She was the real deal, but boy was she problematic. My course mates and I worshipped her, but also loved to bitch about her during our secret junk food picnics. It was how I imagined drama school to be. Think crawling around the studio floor being cats, extreme intimacy with others, crying in circles. It was wildly chaotic, but there was a strange kind of method to it. Something like breaking us down to build us up. We'd spent a weekend each month in her studio, then returned to our lives wide-eyed and changed. I was having the time of my life. I made new friends, I found I was quite good at teaching yoga, and I learned a whole new value system. The teacher encouraged us to eat mostly fruit and vegetables. Whenever someone had genuine flu, she would say they were shedding layers or purging. I became a vegetarian and flirted with veganism, and I started to alienate my boyfriend by preaching yogic philosophy every time he had a problem. We all graduated with certificates, enabling us to do this as a job if we wanted to, all while hugging and dancing around lentil salads and date-based treats, which, in time, I came to learn, are not treats at all. The Yoga Alliance is the closest organisation to an official governing body in yoga, and it is recognised globally. But while most yoga studios require teachers to have a minimum 200-hour certificate and be insured, there is very little regulation of individual training courses, so the content and quality varies hugely. When we finished, B advised us to build our teaching gradually so as not to burn out. She warned against trying to make a living from it anytime soon, but I decided to do the exact opposite and immediately quit my job. Somehow it paid off, in part because of my relentlessly hard-working nature, but mostly because this was before doing yoga training became a craze, so there was still plenty of work available. Undoubtedly the biggest factor was that I was 24, amenable, and commercially viable. I said yes to absolutely everything, and cycled around London teaching a ridiculous number of classes. I made friends with a few influential people who helped open doors, 
I got into a few of the cool studios and gave my heart and soul to every class. I'd make a new, stirring playlist every week and try to keep up with the fast-paced, dynamic classes studios were calling for. For a while, I tried to replicate the style of the most popular teachers, and in my spare time I signed up to the hardest classes and bent and sweated myself into the most obscure shapes. But no matter what I tried, people would come to me at the end of class and say, that was nice and gentle, or they'd leave halfway through because it was not sweaty enough. And I got injured all the time. My body felt bad. I was swollen, sore, and still not able to get anywhere near a handstand. The most popular teachers taught borderline gymnastics classes and had Instagram followings because of their sweet hot abs and astonishing physical abilities. And let me just say, it's not normal. The relative ease with which certain bodies can do certain shapes is most likely due to hypermobility or a childhood spent doing gymnastics. The rest of us muggles can try a thousand times harder and never achieve it, or do so only to the detriment of our long-term health. But this kind of physical expectation made its way into mainstream classes. Anyone can walk in from their normal job to a vinyasa flow class and find themselves hurt or mortified. In my first few years as a yoga teacher, I was susceptible to any fad going, I was seeking answers, and wherever I turned there was someone claiming to have them. It was during this period that I became immersed in some of the darker sides of the yoga industry. Yoga will always be more emotionally high risk than something like Pilates, because of the way it intersects with spirituality. I became obsessed with a style of yoga that certifies only teachers who train directly through its practitioners for triple the usual price. I was a regular at the 90-minute sermon-like classes. These teachers have to sign a contract for lifelong veganism and are encouraged to preach on animal cruelty and moral code. Chanting was also a big part of the practice and I became enamoured of the haunting sound of the harmonium, a portable Indian reed organ. It didn't cross my mind that 30 white people chanting to Krishna on a Thursday evening in North London could be problematic because it felt so good. I followed one teacher on a retreat to Norfolk, then India, and found myself bowing down to her commanding nature, desperate to impress her with how long I could hold a headstand for. Over dinner one night, she declared that all yoga teachers should be able to hold one for at least a minute. The rigid and challenging sequences left me with a back injury. Out of action, I found myself on another quest for answers. And I found two One was a dance-like style of yoga that gave me a lot of joy until I found myself in a power struggle with the founder and only teacher of the practice. I was attracted to see his presence in class and sexual energy, the attention he gave me, so I didn't question the details of the training he was offering. After I'd paid thousands of pounds to train with him in his garage, I started to realise that there was zero syllabus and we were at the mercy of his whims. I was punished for asking challenging questions and it ended explosively with me storming out one Sunday morning. The other was yoga therapy. I completed six months of the two-year training. At first, it ticked all the boxes of yoga being used for health and healing, until I realised we were being trained to open people up emotionally, but not how to deal with the consequences. Next, a gut-wrenching breakup led me to D. 
Dee's classes at a prestigious London yoga franchise were highly popular. Even off-peak classes on Tuesdays at 10am had a waiting list. Because I didn't want to look as if I was trying too hard, I'd wear baggy clothes and roll my eyes at the crop-top huns in their handstands that I still couldn't do if I tried. But I was drinking the Kool-Aid and it tasted delicious. Dee could charm anyone. If you were lucky, you'd get a nickname. I did. Some people would thrive on his gentle mocking and some on simply being noticed. Me. Once, after a Zoom class during the pandemic, Dee texted me saying, I love you facing the camera when you come out of that backbend, like you're coming up on a pill. I felt both excited and self-conscious. I'd been in my bedroom and unaware he was watching me among the 50 other people in the class. I'd wanted his attention, but suddenly seeing this message felt like a step over the line. A friend told me that he once assisted her in a pose in his class by cupping her crotch. She froze and did nothing, then never went back. It was his thing to walk around the room and assist everyone in different shapes. I was desperate to be touched by him, and I'm pretty sure I wasn't the only one. The atmosphere was outrageous because everyone is half-naked, listening to loud club music and being pushed to their physical edge. The release of endorphins was leading to some seriously questionable behaviour. I thought Dee and I were friends because we'd text between classes, but some weeks he'd be distant and I'd leave feeling desperate to re-establish our special relationship. Competitiveness fueled the room and people did not smile at each other. It was so toxic, it was flammable. But then something happened in my personal life that meant I wasn't up to practising hard yoga and in that period the illusion crumbled. Yoga breaks our hearts because it promises so much. I realised that as a teacher, I was deliberately curating intense playlists and saying provocative things for a reaction. Is that ethical? Last year, a man in his mid-40s who had been attending my classes for a couple of years developed a very unhealthy attachment to me because of the way I looked at him and the things I said in class. It escalated to a scary place, And I'm not saying it's my fault, but in these positions of power and authority, we have to be careful. We are not simply describing a lunge, but preaching a way of life. A peer of mine developed a problematic attachment to a teacher. Their relationship became dangerously codependent, and I watched a cyclical dynamic play out. Student seeks approval of teacher. Teacher either grants or withholds approval. Student works harder. Teacher demands more affirmation everyone goes home hungry. The financial limitations involved meant yoga teachers had to be even more entrepreneurial to make ends meet. Competition created a constant looming threat of losing popularity and thus work, leading to a trend for teachers to run self-invented training courses to make some decent cash. The problem was that these courses were centred around healing and self-work. I watched several friends be pushed to their emotional limits encouraged to do a kind of therapy-level soul excavation. Only this teacher wasn't a therapist. She hadn't done the appropriate training, and she wasn't being regulated within a wider system. If you, like me, are one of the many wide-eyed students for whom yoga becomes more than a hobby, you may have been drawn to the promise of healing, only to discover practices that would send shivers down the spines of anyone who hadn't already lost their mind to pranayama. That's breathwork to mortals. The industry is so profoundly unregulated, 
that any charismatic individual can have a transformative experience, decide to turn it into a course, a methodology or an event, then sell tickets to desperate people. Some years ago, I signed up to a week-long bodywork training course, hoping to brush up on anatomy and restorative touch. On the fifth day, a shamanic South American tobacco product called Hape was being blown into the nostrils of everyone on the course. I declined, after watching person after person break down in tears and tremors, and knowing I had to get the overground home. Hape use dates back centuries and originated among Amazonian tribes. It is potent and powerful. I've seen it many times, this chasing of transformational experience, the pushing of deep, potentially traumatic triggers to make people break down just in order to feel something. It comes with a territory for yoga teachers, and I've watched it send people into various states of mental instability in the name of healing. Ever since the West hooked onto yoga in the 70s, it has been big business. The industry is now worth more than $100 billion worldwide. For decades, people with narcissistic personalities have created styles of yoga and developed impenetrable cult followings. In my experience, both big-chain yoga studios and small businesses are problematic. Teachers are universally underpaid and often asked if they don't mind sweeping the studio on their way out. Young women are the most vulnerable because we are trained to say yes and never ask for more, so we don't. And when we pluck up the self-respect, we are replaced. An absence of sick pay, maternity pay and something as simple as a contract also creates a fearful culture and leads to burnout. I recently set fire to the last remaining bridge I had with a yoga studio and now, for the first time, I work only for myself. After eight years of service, I had the same wage and absolutely no security. My bosses were looking to replace my peak slot with a more dynamic class because power yoga sells more. Spiritual platitudes were sent my way via WhatsApp, telling me to let go of the past and not hang on, and I laughed out loud at how only in the yoga industry would that wash. It hurt my feelings, even though I'd experienced endless versions of this in my career. And what hurt the most was realising that all of it, the years of trying to help other people feel better, lighting candles, rubbing heads with lavender, listening to people open up at the end of class, planning new and interesting ways to teach the same thing, cycling through the wind and rain at 6am, even when I was sick or heartbroken, choosing the perfect music to create a deep experience for the room, smiling endlessly, being warm, nurturing and gentle, pouring thousands into more training, trying and trying and trying, crumbles to nothing if the numbers aren't right. I've started practising yoga again. It tends to be me sandwiched between my desk and dresser in my pyjamas. Small snatches where I'm interrupted by the dog or the Amazon delivery man. Sometimes I light a candle or some incense and remember the feeling I used to get when I discovered yoga for the first time. I breathe and listen to my old playlists, and feel something. It's been more valuable than ever to have this time to practice the things that work for me, and leave behind the rest. Even though I've seen the other side, I still believe yoga has the power to help understand the human condition. It didn't save my life, and thinking it will save yours is the beginning of a slippery slope. But you know what? Taking the time to move and breathe? That's always worth doing.
That was, the teacher cupped her crotch. She never went back. When Yoga Turns Toxic by Annie Rice. Read by Brownie Rule. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of this episode in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoying this podcast? Then we think you might love the audio long read. The podcast of the Guardian long read column showcasing the best long form journalism. From politics to psychology, food to technology, culture to crime, The Long Read offers great stories and big ideas. Subscribe to The Audio Long Read wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Weekend. Finally. Nick Gazard's daughter Holly was at work in a hairdresser's when she was attacked by her abusive ex, who the police had failed to arrest. Here, Nick recalls the horror of that day and why he's thrown himself into campaigning. Written by Anna Moore. Read by William Vanderpoy. Nick Gazard remembers only flashes of the day that he lost his daughter Holly. He remembers two police officers arriving at his home in Gloucester and telling him, that Holly had been stabbed at the hairdressing salon where she worked. He remembers that the consultant at the Gloucestershire Royal Hospital was shaking when he told Gazard, his wife and their older daughter, that they had been unable to save her and that Holly was dead. The family weren't allowed to see Holly that day. Her body was a crime scene now. Later, he remembers being driven by police along with his wife and dog in an armed convoy of three vehicles, to his mother-in-law's house in the Cotswolds, because Holly's killer was still on the run, and police judged their home unsafe, believing Gazard might also be a target. The car was virtually silent as it weaved through country lanes, and there was one clear thought in Gazard's head. Am I in a movie? Is any of this real? For two days, he didn't eat. He doesn't think he cried because, he says, I'm not a crier. He barely slept. His wife Mandy had been prescribed sedatives. You're just existing, he says. Your mind is thinking, thinking, thinking. What happened? How can this be true? Could I have noticed more? This month marks the 10th anniversary of Holly's death, and for Gazard, making sense of it, understanding how his 20-year-old daughter came to be murdered by her ex-partner, Asher Maslin, has been key to his own survival and his ability to move forward. Holly had known Maslin for only a year, and though by the end, Gazard certainly knew that Maslin was trouble. He had never believed 
that Holly's life could be in danger. Learning about domestic abuse, recognising the red flags and picking out the patterns has given him purpose. I've always loved learning anyway, and after losing Holly, I was like Jack climbing the beanstalk, he says. Suddenly, you get to the top, you're above the clouds, and there is this huge field that you had no idea existed. When I look back with all the knowledge I've gained, I can see all sorts of things that were happening in that relationship. If I knew then what I know now, I would have saved Holly's life because I would have taken action. It has made me determined to use her story to prevent others from going through the same thing. Maybe that's my coping mechanism. I had to take action and do something practical to get through. Gazard was close to Holly. Growing up, she was active, sporty, very much like me, he says. Gazard had been a professional footballer before injury forced him to stop playing, instead building a career in financial services. He had two daughters, Chloe, then Holly, three years later. She tried every sport under the sun, which kept me busy as I was taking her everywhere. In her teens, fashion and beauty stepped in to replace sport. She did a hairdressing apprenticeship at a local salon and really started to develop as a young woman, says Gazard. She had lots of different styles, cuts and colours. She was very creative and a real socialite. She had a big circle of friends, a beaming smile. She was that fun, loving person that you wanted to be with. I love that about Holly. When she met Maslin in February 2013, Holly was 19 and had applied for a hairdressing job on a cruise ship. Though she did go, she returned after just one week and instead found a job in London. Maslin moved in with her. There were incidents that worried Gazard, his wife and Chloe. At times, Holly seemed less bubbly. If they saw her without Maslin, he would call and message her constantly. After four months in London, Holly rang out of the blue asking Gazard to come and collect her. He drove straight over and Holly moved back home. Maslin followed her back to Gloucester. For the next five months, Holly and Maslin had a kind of on-off relationship. He wasn't taking no for an answer, says Gazard. Days before her murder, Holly told Maslin that the relationship was over for good. He threw a drink in her face, stole her debit card and used it to withdraw money from a cash point. When Holly told her parents, they urged her to call the police. Two officers came to their home to take a statement and it was then that Gazard began to learn more about his daughter's relationship. We couldn't believe what Holly was telling them, he says. I was amazed at the threats he had been making. If you split up with me, my family will get you. If you leave, I'll throw acid in your face. Holly's phone buzzed incessantly during the police interview and she showed them the messages coming through. If you don't pick up, I'll come and put a baseball bat round your dad's head, said one. By then, Mandy and I were more or less in tears, says Gazard. Still, Gazard believed that this was probably the end of it, that Maslin was an angry man making empty threats. We didn't know anyone who had been abused or stalked, killed or injured, and coercive control wasn't a well-known term back then, he says. I thought he would move on to someone else now that the police were involved. In fact, a subsequent report by the Independent Police Complaints Commission, now the Independent Office for Police Conduct, criticised the ineffective police response that day. The officers focused on the theft of the bank card, not the threats, 
nor Maslin's criminal record. He had been arrested 23 times, including for the abuse of his mother and two previous partners, pouring petrol through one of their doors. Previously, police had also seen Maslin on CCTV footage with his hands around Holly's throat in the city centre. It had been picked up through routine monitoring. Gazard knew none of this. Holly was not given a safety plan and Maslin's behaviour was not recognised as stalking or harassment. The officers attempted to arrest him at his mother's house after Holly had reported him, but he wasn't in. They were given two alternative addresses, neither of which they visited. Two days later, on the 18th of February 2014, he walked into the salon where Holly worked and stabbed her 14 times. Maslin was arrested in the early hours of the next morning, so Gazard and Mandy were safe to return home where they pulled down the blinds. I suppose because I'm a pragmatic person, my way of dealing with it was through the practicalities. What happens next? When can we see her? When can we bury her? There was plenty to do. I was sorting out Holly's wages, discovering the debts he'd run up. Maslin had taken out credit cards and mobile phone contracts in Holly's name. It was my 50th birthday that year, and we were planning on going to Las Vegas and L.A., so there were all these cancellations to be done. Then there was the police and the case and the media. Language kept tripping him up. I kept asking myself, do I refer to Holly in the past tense or the present tense? Do I have two daughters or one daughter now? It sounds small, but these are the things that go through your mind. It took a while for Holly's body to be released, as Maslin had insisted on a second autopsy for the defence. Even in death, he still had that power over her, says Gazard. Identifying his daughter's body at the local coroner's court was, says Gazard, the hardest thing he has ever done. You don't know what you're going to see or how you're going to react. She looked at peace. I was only allowed to touch her hand. It was cold. Holly hated being cold. The funeral took place on a bright spring day in March. It's a very strange thing to say, but I enjoyed her funeral, says Gazard. The public reaction had been huge, so we had it at Gloucester Cathedral, and 1,000 people came. We asked that they wear bright colours, as that's what Holly was, bright and bubbly. I remember standing by the stained glass window, the sun shining in, feeling just so proud of Holly and what she stood for. One month later, Gazard launched the Holly Gazard Trust, HGT. A fundraising walk raised £20,000 and his colleagues helped him jump through the hoops to secure charitable status. Very early on, I had said that I didn't want Holly to just fade away. She's too good for that. Helping other people was a practical thing I could do that was within my control. At the outset, I thought maybe we'd help a young hairdresser get on the ladder. That quickly changed as Gazard learned more about domestic abuse by reading up and meeting others who worked in the field. The HGT now has seven part-time staff, one of whom is his daughter Chloe, and focuses on raising public awareness about domestic abuse and coercive control through education in schools, colleges, businesses, police forces and other public bodies. It also promotes the use of prevention tools, 
The Holly Guard Personal Safety App has had 500,000 downloads. Among its many features is a discrete alert system that in an emergency can send your location as well as live audio and video to a chosen contact. Data from Hollyguard has already been submitted as evidence in 60 police investigations. Gazard has been told that he has kept so busy he has never stopped to grieve. As well as his work on the HGT, he returned to his financial services job just one month after Holly's death, although his boss sent him away and urged him to take more time out. What is grief anyway, he says. It's an emotional period, and perhaps I'd do it in a different way. How would someone know how I feel? For two years, Gazard felt guilty if he laughed or smiled. And I'm a smiley person, he says. I felt guilty about eating certain things which were Holly's favourite foods. She loved KFC, so I felt guilty if I stopped there, because she couldn't. Far harder was his guilt around Holly's death. I still berate myself privately, he says. A father's job is to protect his children. Could I have done more? Why didn't I? Those feelings ebb and flow, and what I normally do is put them in a box. If I can't change something, then let me leave it over there and not think about it. It's the same with him. Gazard avoids referring to Maslin by name. I don't think about him because, for me, that's negative energy. Maslin pleaded guilty to murder and is now serving a life sentence with a minimum of 24 years in prison. Somehow, Gazard has not been eaten up by anger towards either him or the police. Anger is an emotion that damages you. I don't want to waste time being angry, he says. I put that feeling away and instead talk to police forces about what went wrong and ask, can you learn from it? He believes Maslin was let down too. He was known to police and social services. Surely, as a society, we've got to deal with these people and try to change them and get them off that path. Perpetrator programmes, a range of interventions designed to help abusers change behaviour, are a difficult area, a minefield. But if you solve the perpetrator, then you don't have the victim. Pouring everything into his mission hasn't come without cost. In May 2020, Gazard had a stroke. I think it was probably my body saying, enough's enough. You've got to slow down and take time for yourself. At that point, he was juggling his job with his charity work. After his stroke, he took early retirement and committed to just three days a week with the HGT. He has joined a spa and follows local rugby to relax. There have been other impacts too. He and Mandy have recently divorced. I think we grieved in different ways and wanted different things, he says. I'm not fixated, but the HGT is my drive now. Perhaps I did sacrifice my relationship because of what I wanted to achieve. I probably did. What helps him, though, what he really holds on to, is the message from those who have learned from Holly's death. We hear from people all the time who tell us, you saved my life, you got me out of that relationship. Gazard remembers one mother from Wolverhampton, whose teenage daughter escaped an abusive boyfriend after seeing Holly's story in a documentary. Gazard has collaborated with at least nine documentary teams. No one had been able to get through to her daughter until Holly, he says. The more I see we're helping people, the bigger we get and the better I feel. 
It has also allowed Gazard to keep Holly close, keep saying her name and to talk about her. In the very early days, I remember going with Mandy to the local supermarket and people would cross the road to avoid eye contact, he says. We'd walk down one aisle and people would turn around and go back the other way. People didn't want to engage with us. I think they found it so difficult. Even now, I find people a bit reticent, he continues. But I love talking about Holly. Please, talk to me about her. Ask me the questions. She is my daughter. I was very fortunate to have her for 20 years, and what she's doing now is brilliant. That was... My daughter was stabbed to death by her ex-boyfriend, but I won't let anger destroy me. Written by Anna Moore. Read by William Vanderpoy. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this piece, we've included details of helplines you can contact on the episode page at theguardian.com. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review or let us know what you want to hear more of. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by William Vanderpoy and Bryony Rawl and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer is Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.